0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Nobody likes to have a story spoiled, especially one you've just begun. We are in chapter one of the book of Ruth this morning, but I'm going to assume that many of us already know how this story unfolds and ends. After all, this is a story that has been in circulation for at least 2,500 years, perhaps even more, up to 3,000 years. If this is new to you, then don't worry, I won't Ruin it with too many details, but I would commend to you, to all of us for that matter, to even refresh us, a nice Sunday afternoon reading of Ruth. It's only four chapters, and to be open to God's voice coming through. One person sums up the book in this way, speaking to the general arc of the narrative. He says, the book of Ruth begins with a funeral but ends with a wedding. It begins with a famine but it ends in fullness. It begins with weeping but ends in joy. Like most things in life, before we get to the good ending, the wedding, the fullness, the joy part, we have to work through the hard beginning, the funeral, three for that matter, in this story, the famine, the weeping, the darkness before the day. With this often comes a sense of hopelessness. In fact, Naomi clearly, explicitly states and laments the fact that she is hopeless, You can find that about halfway through this passage. She's hopeless. And it's not hard to understand why. She's felt the effects and the threat of famine. It caused her and her family to uproot and go in search of better provision elsewhere to a foreign land. She's intimately felt the loss of loved ones, including the premature death of her husband, Elimelech. And that's not all, two sons, Chilion and Mela. In this way, Naomi joins the ranks of many others throughout sacred scripture who suffer. In seasons of hopelessness. Think of Joseph, who found himself in an Egyptian prison. Now what? Betrayed by his brothers. Moses, leaving a very, leading a very disgruntled, disobedient, hard-hearted people through the wilderness who just continually wanted to go back to Egypt. David, on the run from King Saul, for his life, hiding in caves in distant regions. Eventually, on the run from his own son, Absalom, the whole nation of Israel turned against him. Daniel, in captivity in Babylon, found himself in a lion's den. Jeremiah, literally, thrown into a pit and left to die. A New Testament example. How about... uh, The disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, 24 hours after the crucifixion, hiding for fear of their lives being at risk. Now what? Hopeless. Most people, if not all, at some point in life will experience a season or seasons of feeling hopeless in some degree someone aptly and poignantly said that in life you are in either one of three places currently as you sit. You're either in a storm right now and aren't we good at hiding that sometimes or you've just come out of a storm in which you are repairing the ship in seeking restoration or You're experiencing pretty smooth sailing. Things are going fairly well right now. But there's a storm on the horizon coming, and you may or may not be aware of that fact yet. You're about to enter it. What do you do when a storm hits and that sense of hopelessness sinks its teeth into your soul? What now? Know this. When things seem hopeless, God is not helpless. Let that plant and be a hook in your mind in which you can fall back on. When things seem hopeless, God is not helpless. You may be helpless. God is not. As the psalmist says, God, giving him the glory, is Our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So that leaves us to question and wonder how. What does that look like? Practically speaking, how is God our refuge and our strength in times of trouble? Well, for starters, I would encourage you to rely on God's guidance. When a storm hits, don't rely on yourself. Rely on God's guidance to bring you through it. Now, I'm not so sure that we have very good examples of this here in Ruth chapter 1. To begin with, consider Elimelech, the head of the household. In the face of the threat of famine and which brings the devastation devastation of death, what does he do? He flees. He takes his family from that little village Bethlehem, the house of bread, and he goes to Moab. Now that may seem innocent on the surface and even reasonable, but upon further inspection of this shift in geography, it ought to raise some questions. Was this perhaps an act of mistrust in God's provision in the face of famine? Was Elimelech feeling hopeless that God would provide, that God would sustain him and his household through these years of hardship? Was Elimelech relying on his own capacity to reason and to find a solution to the presenting problem? I think the chances of this are good. Yes. For one, we are never told in this story that Elimelech reached out to God for guidance in this decision. And The reason why that's important is because I've read enough surveys of figures in the Bible to realize that when that's missing, typically... A person or persons are acting on their own strength, ability, and wisdom. And it is not without consequence. So when we're reading the life story of someone in Scripture and we read the fact that they asked God for wisdom, it's important to note that. Because when they don't, they didn't. Doesn't tend to play out well. And what happens? Well, for one, we have the outcome of death. Elimelech dies, and both sons in the story die, and we're only five verses in. We also need to make note of where they go and what they leave behind. At this point in time, the people of God have made their way through the wilderness. They've hung on to the hope of being planted and established in the promised land, and they're there. That's where Elimelech is. He's in Bethlehem. This is where God promised to put his people and to provide for them, to establish them. So when something hard comes along and Elimelech goes to Moab, we need to realize that he has left the promised land. He has gone to a foreign place looking for provision. And the Moabites were no friends of God's people, the Israelites. In fact, many times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we are given insight to the fact that the Moabites worship a whole other god named Chemosh, some of the practices of which, if we knew, we would be appalled, including human sacrifice. In a sexually liberated society, we would consider some of their practices quite abominable, that they were ensnared in. God again and again had told his people, I don't want you with them. Don't go there. Don't marry them. You are to be set apart from that way of life. So it's not nothing, the fact that Elimelech goes to Moab. We should also note the fact that not everybody did go to Moab. Not everybody left. Many people stayed behind in Bethlehem. By the end of this chapter, we realize that Naomi makes a return trip back to Bethlehem after losing almost everything, coming up empty. And she's greeted by people who know who she is. Is this Naomi, the one who left us all those years ago? It is. Well, they stayed behind. And they're alive. Perhaps God sustained them in the face of hardship. It might not have been easy, but we need to realize that. Sometimes we have to step back and make room for God to speak into our life situation and to act. The Scriptures encourage us to trust in the Lord with all your heart, especially when it gets hard, and lean not on your own understanding For God says, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. One of the consequences of this reality is the fact that our ways will often lead us in other ways from where God would lead us. God's way forward is very often not our way forward. To provide a personal example, I would attest to the fact that in ministry, If I had been charting my own way forward, I wouldn't be here. Almost at every turn, when I tried to take the reins and say, I think that's where I'm to go, God said, no, you're not, this way. The Apostle Paul experienced the same. You'll remember in Acts chapter 16, he has the young Timothy with him, and he sets his mind to go to Asia to take the gospel message to the people there. And at this juncture... God, through the Holy Spirit, enters the picture and puts a halt to those plans and says, no, you won't. I want you to go to Macedonia, Paul. I know you want to go there, but I don't want you going there. Do we allow for this in our walk with God that we might face resistance from God? It's a question we need to ask and be aware of. But you may say, It's easier said than done. I don't sense God's presence, God's guidance in my life. I don't hear it, and I don't see it. It's all foggy. I can't relate. Well, in that case, seek God's presence. God's guidance comes when we are in God's presence. And here we have a positive example in Ruth. Ruth, The Moabite determines in her mind that God is, in fact, in this place of Bethlehem. She learns through Naomi that God has visited the land and is now providing for the people. And she says, almost in poetic form, to Naomi, even though Naomi is urging her to stay in Moab, there's no hope for you with me. Ruth says, your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. There is no deterring her. Ruth is set to go where she knows God is, in Bethlehem. And she goes there. She puts herself into the presence of God through his people in his land. And it is here, and only here, at this point, that God begins to direct her way forward once she is in the presence of God. Now, I'm speaking to a people who have gone out of their way this morning to come into the presence of God. You know where to find God in a place like this on a Sunday morning. We commune with him at the altar. We hear him speak to us through sacred scripture. We pray to him. And he responds to us, and we fellowship as the body of Christ. We are in God's presence. But what about Monday through Saturday? Where's God? Go there. Be in his presence. Because it's tempting to think, I want God's guidance in my life, but I don't want God himself. Many people stumble on that. I, for one, included from time to time. I want the benefits of God, but not God himself. And it doesn't work that way. God wants you to want him. And if you're with him, he will most certainly guide and direct you forward. You may have no idea how that is going to look, but he will. And the reason he will is because of this. Lastly, we need to remember when we're feeling hopeless God's providence. Now, that's a loaded word. Very theological term that I want to define for us. J.I. Packer says this about God's providence If creation, all of creation, was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, did God just leave it at that point? No. Providence, God's providence, is a continued exercise of that same energy, whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in their being, involves himself in all their events, and directs all things to their appointed end. The model is of a purposeful, personal management with total hands-on control, God is completely in charge, and that goes for his world and his people. Does your view of God accommodate for that fact? I think we're tempted to think much smaller of God, that God is of generally goodwill towards us, but mostly hands-off. He might get angry if certain political convictions are violated or sad when we're intolerant. No, God is so much bigger than that. He is directing on a global scale the whole course of events in the world, and we see the trace of his hand at work in a story like Ruth. But he's also big enough to do this, to act personally in your life. We may not see it, but he's doing it. From from Naomi's perspective, she was blind to this fact. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, she concludes, don't even call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and I've come back empty. She has no hope ahead of her. She has no idea what God is about to do in her life and in Ruth, her daughter-in-law. By the end of chapter 4, the end of this book, the people of Bethlehem are blessing Naomi, saying, Naomi, Ruth is to you like more than seven sons, because Ruth marries Boaz and gives birth to a baby. Ruth becomes the ancestor to King David, establishing the line of descent for our Lord Jesus Christ to come, who is our hope. We are intimately connected to these events in this story. But who would have thought two widowed, grieving, destitute, bereft women feeling hopeless, probably hoping for nothing more than to just make it to Bethlehem and to carve out a meager little living and survive. God has far more in store for them. You feeling hopeless? Let us learn from the examples on display here. Let us rely on God's guidance and not our own. Let us seek God's presence and not just his benefits. And let us not ever forget in God's providence over the world and our lives. Amen.